Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. It's nice to see the kids up there, isn't it? Uh, give, let's, we just clap for everybody. Clap for the Lord. Clap for the kids, the teachers, the musicians. You know, they're singing, we will dance, dance, dance. And uh, I'm still on this thing. I think we need like a holy choreographer, you know, like. Uh, I was watching The Chosen this week. I happened to, my kids watch it from time to time, although uh, I think Netflix cut us off from the household sharing thing, you know. I don't know what happened, but uh, um, I was getting ready for bed, and if my kids hurry up and get ready for bed in time, then we'll have time to watch an episode. And I ha- it happened to be the wedding at Cana, which is where we were at studying in Scripture last Sunday, last week. In John chapter 2, it, it was the, the portion of Scripture we looked at. And, you know, you see the wedding and you see them dancing. And it's like I've shared with you before, there was something, uh, something that just caught my intention, attention when I was able to go uh, with the Maylies to, the, to Camp Atterbury and the Afghan refugees were there. And just, you know, these are guys who'd been work in, embedded with our military, with special forces. They've been fighting. These are like hardened men, warriors, um, and, you know, it's an interesting atmosphere, and then at some point in the night, uh, they all just get up, and they start dancing together, a choreographed dance, a dance they knew, a dance of their culture, and it was just a, it was just an awesome thing, and it, I saw that in The Chosen, so I think, you know, like, I think there's some of us here that are just bubbling over with the joy of the Lord, and we want to dance, we just don't know any, any dances, anyway. Uh, so I'm still on that. I don't know. I think, I think we need to get on that. We have in our culture, we have the chicken dance and the locomotion, you know, I think. People like to say we're the greatest country in the world, but, you know, I don't know if you judge us off of our cultural dances that I think maybe we're lacking, you know. We've got some work to do. We're in John chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 13. If you have your Bible, you can open with us. Today is the first Sunday of the month. During the summer months, uh, we're giving the teachers in the back a break. So the kids are in here. We're just going to, we're going to roll with it. Um, We love that the kids are here. We know that kids make noises. And so we're not going to be uptight about it. Um, And uh, there's some coloring pages in the back or whatever. And I'll try not to just go on and on as well. You know, we'll be, be aware of that. But we do have a, a awesome portion of scripture. I'm excited about it. I've been thinking about it this week, and um, I really feel like, you know, maybe it was coincidental that the one episode I sit down and watch with my kids is the one that we just studied, but, uh, you know, it really got me thinking about what we're going to study today, and it got me thinking about the contrast of the, the two events. So before we begin, let me just say a quick prayer. Jesus, I need you. We need you. We ask you to send your spirit to help us. Let me say things that are true. uh, And let us have hearts to receive, to believe. Let it be helpful. uh, And let it have the effect of your kingdom coming, breaking into our life more and more. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And let it bring the abundant life that you promised to give as we study your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. 
So we were looking at the first part of chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. Um, the book of John, the gospel of John, was written later than the other gospels. And it has a little bit of a different emphasis. The first three gospels are really taking effort. They, they all have their distinctions, their unique voice, because of, they have distinct authors who are reporting on the same events. Uh, and they're really taking effort to show that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. And John is writing later uh, to a church that has, uh, is multicultural. It has Gentiles. It has people from all backgrounds. And he uh, goes to efforts, and he tells us actually his purpose. In John chapter 20, near the end of the gospel, verse 31... He says, uh, he says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's given us his purpose. He's writing to, that we would believe. And uh, the first part of the book of John has seven signs. He has seven signs that Jesus performs, and these signs... Uh, to the people that witness them, create belief, but he's also writing them that they will stir up belief in us. And the first sign that Jesus did was uh, change water to wine at the wedding in Cana. And in the episode of The Chosen, it's not recorded in Scripture, every, you know, all the dialogue that took place at the wedding, every event, the main part is that Jesus changed water to wine. But uh, when they raised the glasses at the wedding... They say this prayer, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. They are blessing God, and they're recognizing that it's God who brings forth the fruit of the vine, who brings forth the wine. And Jesus performs a miracle bringing forth the fruit of the vine. John is showing that Jesus is God. You know, and there's a theological term, I guess, called... Uh, Christology, Christology, and it's, it's fitting. We need to have a right understanding of who Christ is. He's fully God, and he's fully man. And John is showing us that. But Jesus brings forth the wine, and we know, I don't want to rehash it, but um, to run out of wine, these, these weddings were significant, deeply significant. Obviously, weddings are significant events in our lives, but even more so in the culture at that time. And um, it could bring honor or shame to a family, depending on how this event went off and was carried out. And to run out of wine uh, would have been deeply shameful and would have uh, tarnished the reputation of this family. A lot of these weddings were, uh, it was kind of a, you know, the, the favors and the, the honor and the hospitality that these families showed uh, there was a, an expectation because it was exchanged and given and it would be like holding out, not fulfilling. It would, it would paint you as someone who's not trustworthy, not contributing to the life of the community uh, fully, and it would tarnish them. And so they're on the verge as running, from running out of wine, whether that's because of poverty or because of poor planning. Uh, some scholars say that Jesus brought his disciples. There were extra people and maybe they drank more than their share of wine. Um, you know, sometimes it feels like that, like 
we get in a bind because of Jesus in our lives, you know? Yeah, I don't know, maybe you don't feel that way, but sometimes like I'm in a situation because I'm following Jesus and I don't know what's going to happen and I feel like I'm on the verge of a breakdown, a meltdown, um, disgrace uh, because I follow Jesus to this place or I've invited him into my life. But anyway, we know that Jesus changes the water to wine and what stood out to me was that, uh, you know, they had these stone jars that had, was it 20 to 30 gallons? These were big ceremonial jars. Jesus created more wine than they could consume at that wedding. And so not only did he take them from the verge of shame and just barely help them scrape by, you know, with nothing left over, but they had a commodity. They had a resource on their hands that they could use or sell that would enrich their family beyond this day. And when Jesus does a miracle in our life, he, Scripture says that through him we're more than conquerors. He takes us from the verge of disgrace, the verge of defeat, and he uh, provides for us in an abundant way that carries over and spills over uh, into all areas of our life. And it spilled over to their guests. He performed a miracle on behalf of the wedding party. The guests received the benefit. And it should be this way in our lives that Jesus working in your life should spill over to your family. It should spill over to your neighbors. It should spill over to the people in your life. That's evident of, evidence of Christ at work in your life. That, that blessing, that joy, you know, wine represents that joy. It spills over and is infectious and contagious and blesses other people. And this is how it should be. Um, so one more thing I want to point out is that Jesus told them, he said, fill up the stone jars. And John includes the detail. How did they fill up the stone jars? They filled it to the brim. And so, uh, you know, they didn't know why they were doing that. It didn't make sense to fill these stone jars with water. You know, it's like when you have one crisis, you try to deal with that, and it seems like he's having them, you know. It's like uh, your house is on fire, and, you know, you're trying to, uh, I don't know, touch up a little spot of paint or something like that. Your, your attention's in the wrong place. But they were obedient to the brim. You know, they were obedient to the brim. He told them to fill it. They filled it to the brim. And, uh, you know, to the degree that they filled up those stone jars, that's how much water he transformed into wine. And so when we're obedient, we should be obedient to the brim, to the full, to the maximum. Uh, even when we don't see what God's doing, we should be obedient to the brim. And he'll do a miracle in our lives that will have uh, blessing and consequence for other people. So... Um, this is a situation, a, a celebration. This is a, a point of joy. And it concludes in verse 12 by saying, this was the first sign that he did uh, through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him. This sign built faith and belief in his disciples. Obviously, they've left their nets. They've left their livelihood. They've left their families to follow him. But they're believing to a deeper degree at this point. After this, verse 12, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. There he, they stayed for a few days. Okay, so then we come uh, to this other event. So a lot of us love this Jesus, the Jesus that brings wine to the wedding, the Jesus that helps us out and 
tough situation, the, the Jesus that makes us happy and joyful and want to dance, the Jesus that's the life of the party. Uh, we like that Jesus. We, we love that Jesus. We want to emphasize that Jesus, and right, rightfully so. But the same Jesus is participating in this next scene that we have. So I'm going to read to you from 13 to the end of chapter 2, and I want to talk about this. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those he sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it's written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He didn't need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. And so we have... Uh, If you're, if you're going by emotions, if you're characterizing the emotions, we, we switch from joy to what? To anger. We switch from uh, compassion to, to anger. And these aren't two different Jesuses. This is the same Jesus. So it says, when it's time for the Jewish Passover, he went up to Jerusalem now, Jerusalem was a large city, obviously. It was a significant city to Judaism in the Old Testament. Scholars say, you know, hundreds of thousands of Jews would have lived in the city. That would be the permanent population. Uh, sometimes they say 300,000, around a, a quarter of a million, 250,000. Um, they're not for sure. There's a lot of people in this place. But when the Passover comes, those numbers would swell uh, significantly, maybe 10, 10x, maybe 10 times that many people were there. Two and a half million people, perhaps, were in Jerusalem at this time. And the temple would have been a crowded people, a crowded place, sorry. The temple would have been a crowded place. Um, so not only were there, you know, million, millions of people in the city, tens of thousands of people, perhaps, in and around the, the temple and the court. Uh, seeking to worship God, to celebrate Him, to praise Him, to offer sacrifice. And there were also then, these people may have traveled distances. They traveled, uh, and perhaps they didn't bring animals with them for offering. They would, they would come to make a sacrifice, to offer an animal up. And uh, what would happen, what seems to be happening or have had happened, is even if people brought their own animal uh, it was supposed to be without blemish or spot. And so 
a lot of times the offering that they brought may have been rejected or not acceptable by the priesthood. And so they would have had to purchase an animal for offering anyway. So uh, it seems like there was a possibility for corruption. The, the people running the temple were the ones selling the animals. They were the ones uh, verifying the quality of the sacrifice that people were bringing. And so there was the possibility for corruption of rejecting animals so that they could sell their own animals at a, a raised rate, an elevated rate. And not only that, people were coming. They had to pay the temple tax, but they were coming from other places, and their currency would not maybe be acceptable uh, for making the temple tax, so they had to exchange money. So there was another layer uh, of probable corruption where they were exchanging money at dishonest rates. Um, in the other Gospels, this is the, first, the Passover at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He cleanses the temple. The other Gospels have another incidence of him cleansing the temple at the end of his ministry, the final Passover that he celebrates. Uh, in that one, he calls him, he says, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. Here he just says, you've made it a marketplace. And he's cleaning the temple. He's clearing the temple out. He's driving them out. And the disciples, the disciples were Old Testament Jews. They were Old Testament believers. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. And immediately they thought of David's psalm where it says of the Messiah and, and of David. And they recognize that Jesus is the son of David. That zeal for your house consumes me. We're seeing the zeal, the passion that Jesus has for his father's house. And I think it's not necessarily about the address. It's not about the real estate. It's not about the structure. It's about what's supposed to happen there. This is so supposed to be a, a place, Scripture tells us, my house will be called a house of prayer. Jesus quotes that in the other Gospels later on when he cleanses the temple. He's concerned with the business that is supposed to take place. The interaction that's supposed to take place. And it's supposed to be a place of meeting with the Father. It's supposed to be a place where people can encounter the living God. Where they can celebrate the Passover when He passed over them because of the blood of the Lamb that was, that was shed. And, and they marked on their doorpost. And it was because of the blood of that Lamb that their sins were passed over. And remember, John called Jesus. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What is supposed to be happening in the temple, Jesus is passionate about. And he takes matters into his hands. He, it says he, uh, maybe he took leashes from these animals. Maybe he took cords that were laying around. He, he fashioned a whip of cords. And it says he drove them out. He drove them out. So I don't know how many animals are there. This is not just like, you know, a couple, a couple animals, you know, hanging out and a few people. Um, this is a mass of people, a mass of animals. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, um, he estimated that a quarter million animals were sacrificed in the course of a Passover in Jerusalem each year. And uh, then extrapolated from that, he, you know, they... They say that one animal sacrifice would represent a family group of maybe 10 people. That's why they say maybe 2.5 million people 
were in Jerusalem. But Josephus, the historian, uh, trusted by scholars, he said uh, 250,000, a quarter million animals were, were uh, sacrificed at the Passover. So that's a lot of animals. You know, I don't know how many are there at one time, if they keep them outside and bring enough in, you know, and restock the shelves, as it were, when, when the inventory gets low. But uh, this is not recorded as a miracle. But the fact that one man in this mass of people is able to cleanse the temple, to drive out the animals, to drive out the people, to drive out the money changers, to, to scatter their coins, and to cleanse the temple uh, is something of a miracle. Is a miracle. Overlooking the temple, there was a tower filled with Roman soldiers. The temple would have had their own police of maybe a, a force of 300. And then outside that would have been the Roman soldiers overlooking and peering into the temple courtyard to make sure that uh, peace was maintained. And we don't see that the soldiers were called in. So somehow Jesus, through force of his personality, uh, we know that when the soldiers came for him later in his crucifixion, he just, they were looking for Jesus, and he asked them who they're looking for, and he said, I am he. And just the force of his presence, the glory of his presence, knocked them back. And so Jesus is displaying a form of his glory here, and he cleanses the temple. What he's doing with this whip of cords, whether he's cracking it in the air, scaring the animals uh, through the, the force of his voice, the, the weight of his presence, he's not sinning. He never sinned. He's displaying a righteous anger, and he's removing the obstacles that keep people from communing with God. And this shows us how Jesus feels about that, how passionate he is that nothing stands in the way of his people meeting with the Father. You know, I think if you look at churches today, you look at types of Christians today, there, there's Christians that, like I said, we love the, the water to wine Jesus. There's Christians that are the happy, the joyful, the, the partying, the, the celebratory, the, the blessing, the happy time Christians. And they emphasize that. And they, they focus on that. And then there's Christians who focus on this intense, burning, uh, righteous anger of Jesus. And, and they attack what they see as people's sins in their uh, their shortcomings and their failings and their, their inappropriateness or their impropriety in worship. And, and they attack those who they see as uh, doing things the wrong way. And they use this as a justification. But the truth is, this is the same Jesus. The Jesus that brings joy into your life is the Jesus that wants to deal with the obstacles that you have in your life that come between him and you, between the Father and you. Jesus wants to bring blessing. He wants to bring joy into your life. He wants to save you from shame. But the Jesus that brings salvation is the Jesus that brings sanctification. That word means he, he makes holy. He sanctifies. The Jesus that brings the fruitfulness, the fruit of the vine, is the Jesus that does the pruning. He's pruning here. 
The Jesus that gives help in our time of need is the Jesus that makes us holy by dealing with the sin in our life. The Jesus that delivers us in our time of hardship is the Jesus that disciplines us. The Jesus that converts the water to wine is the Jesus that cleanses the temple. Scripture tells us our bodies are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Jesus that wants to convert is the Jesus that cleanses, and it's not different. Some of us, when we first encounter joy, Jesus, we first follow Jesus, we have uh, a period of joy, don't we? We have a period of celebration. We have a period of uh, a honeymoon period, if you would. Um, and if we're not warned and, and trained and uh, taught that that is a season and it's an ongoing experience, however, there's times of pruning. There's times of discipline. There's times uh, of sanctifying. There's times when Jesus will address things in our life. He will want to remove things in our life that we, at the very least, have allowed to creep in. But probably things that we've loved and we've given them room in our life. He wants to deal with those things. Now I was thinking about this, and this isn't, well, there's a positive aspect to Jesus, and there's a negative aspect to Jesus. You might think about that. There's a good side, there's an easy side and a hard side. There's a fun side and a bad side. That is not true. That is not the reality. All of Jesus is good. All of Jesus is good. Scripture tells us he disciplines those he loves. You can read about it in Hebrews 12. He disciplines those he loves, and it's with wisdom, and it's for their benefit, it's for their good, it's for his glory, it's for your blessing. When Jesus, it looks like he's coming at us with fire in his eyes and a whip in his hands, it's for our good. And it's from his love. When he comes with us with wine and a dance, it's for our good and it's from his love. He doesn't change. He doesn't change. We may interpret it differently, but when it comes from Jesus, it's good. It's good. You know, Jesus is righteous in cleansing the temple because this is his father's house. This is his father's house. He has authority in this place to do these things. I can imagine, you know, that I would love to, you know, if I could time travel, I would definitely go, you know, I'd probably start fishing with, uh, you know, on the, on the, in Galilee, you know, on the sea. And I would want to follow the disciples and I would want to experience that. And if I could, I wish I could just, you know, I don't know if I'd want to know what happens at the end or if I just want to experience it for the first time. But I can imagine the, 
the range of emotions the disciples are going to. They see the miracle at the wedding. They've already believed. And then they really believe. They believe in Jesus uh, deeper. And then they go to Jerusalem. And they see what's going on. And, you know, I don't know if this had been going on so long that it was a part of their routine. It was just what they associated with Passover. It was a part of their religious ritual. But how many of you know there's things in your life that maybe you've done at church, maybe you've, that have been part of your Christian life that Jesus may want to address that aren't necessarily uh, biblical, that aren't necessarily the way that God designed it. There may be things in your religion that have crept in somewhere along the lines, traditions of man, that are the way that you've always done things that Jesus may want to deal with. He may want to address those things. He removes those obstacles. He wants to. In Hebrews it says that we should uh, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, run the race set before us, right? What's, the, what's that next part? We're to throw off the things that, the things that hinder us. Huh? What's, yeah, we're supposed to lay aside the weight, some weights that hinder us and sins that entangle us. There's things in our life that are sins that entangle us. There's weights, things that maybe aren't sin that we hold on to that hold us back from running hard after God. And Jesus, to, to bring his kingdom fully, to see the abundant life manifest fully and completely in our life, he deals with those things. And you may think, I love these things. I'm used to these things. I'm comfortable with these things. But it's coming from the goodness of God, from who Jesus is, from his love, his discipline, when he makes changes in our life that we're not comfortable with. And you may be a fairly new believer in Jesus, and, and you're kind of the, the newness, the honeymoon is wearing off, and then there's things that you keep bumping up against in your pursuit of Christ. Uh, there's issues in your life that are from your old life that maybe you just keep, you keep running into, you keep bumping up against, and that may be Jesus telling you, you need to make some changes. You need to drive some things out of your life. You've got some stinky stuff, some stinky animals making some noise in your life that you need to get rid of. You need to cleanse your temple. And I want to encourage you that this is from the goodness of God. This is the same Jesus. He's not changed. You know, it's not a bait and switch where he draws you in by being, uh, you know, friendly and nice and, and giving you wine. And then he turns into this uh, taskmaster. This is not what is happening. The discipline of God is for your good. It results in your joy. Just like the wine results in joy, the blessings of God result in joy. The discipline of God will result in your joy if you will endure it. And you will be obedient to the brim. When God has you remove something from your life, be obedient to the brim. Obey. Like those servants at the wedding. They just did it. They didn't understand it. They didn't know what was going on. They may have even had a bad attitude about it. They obeyed to the brim. You know what's interesting here? I, I love this about Jesus. Um, he, they ask him, 
you know, Jesus had done the sign at the wedding, and that sign resulted in a deeper belief in his disciples, right? Well, here the Pharisees, they ask him the question, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? The Jewish leaders ask for a sign. And he answers them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. And so they want a sign. They want a sign. If you read verse 23 uh, at this chapter, it says that now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the sign he was performing, and, or the signs he was performing, and believed in his name. He was doing multiple signs. They asked for a sign. They asked for a sign throughout his life. They want to know why you're doing this. Why are you allowed to do this? Uh, what authority are you doing these things? Give us a sign. He says, a wicked an adulterous generation asks for a sign. You know, signs, I was thinking about this. Here's what it seems to me. Because we ask, you know, we want to see miracles. Like, why doesn't God just do miracles all the time or miracles through his name? Uh, I would say that he does do them all the time. But it's, a miracle is something that's out of the ordinary. It's not in the ordinary course of events. And signs, I think, they appear to me in Scripture as more of a catalyst speeding up the process that's already in place. The disciples were believing, and they saw a sign, and they believed in a deeper way. The Pharisees, uh, the religious leaders, they were already in a state of unbelief. And even when they saw the signs that Jesus did, it hardened their heart at a faster rate, to a deeper degree. I think signs are a catalyst. If you're prone and inclined to believe, you don't really need a sign to believe. Jesus actually said, blessed are those who believe and haven't seen. There's a, a deeper degree of blessing when we believe and embrace it through faith without having seen. Signs just speed up the condition of our heart. You see what you want to see, really. Uh, so the disciples... It results in a deeper state of belief in them, but the religious leaders who've already decided uh, that they're going to reject Jesus, that they're not going to embrace him, it only increases the hardness of their heart. And it solidifies their plan to eliminate him later on in his life. But Jesus does answer them, and he predicts a sign that will come, and he said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. I love this about Jesus. Uh, he gives an answer. You know, he tells us to let our yes be yes and our no be no. And I, I try to do this with my kids because they always want more information and they want to negotiate, you know. But he gives them an answer. He gives them the answer that they ask for and they don't understand it and they're confused and they are coming back at him with, it's taken 46 years, are you going to, you know, they come back at him kind of with, uh, I think I read in it some snark and some sarcasm. And he doesn't respond further. He gives them the answer. And they can do with it what they will. He gives them the prophecy. Destroy this temple and I will raise it after three days. 
And it says, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. And they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. That's significant there. They believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. They're synonymous. They're synonymous. The scriptures and the Old Testament, the words that Jesus spoke, they are the same. They're on the same level. What Jesus said is scripture. What was written in the Old Testament is scripture. And so Jesus knows the future. He knows what's happening. He knows what's going on. We see that he knows the future here. And then we also see that he knows what's in the hearts of people. Because he did... Uh, he, he performed signs. Many people saw them. They believed in his name. But it says Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He didn't need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Uh, some translations say, but Jesus did not commit himself to them, for he knew all people, or he knew people. So he, he didn't entrust himself to people. He didn't commit himself to people. That's not to say that he did not commit it. It's not saying... Jesus decided not to commit his life for people because he committed his life to people. He gave his life for people. These people that he knows what's in their hearts and he's not convinced by their belief or he knows, he knows what's going on here, the, the degree, the level, the, the shallowness of their belief, he did commit his life to them. He committed his life to the cross. He gave his life for them, but he didn't entrust them for his approval. He didn't look to them for validation. He didn't uh, surround himself with you know, their, their commending words and, and their validation. He looked to the Father for those things, but he still served them. He still gave his life up as a ransom for them. But it says that he knows what's in each person. Jesus knows what's in each person. He knows What's in our hearts? And that ties back to the cleansing of the temple. Cleansing of your life. He knows what's in your heart. He knows your secret sins. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows the lies that you tell yourself. The comforting lies that we tell ourselves that allow us to remain in sin. And uh, the believed lies that we believe from the enemy uh, about ourselves that puts down who we are and who we're made in God's image. There's, there's different types of lies, you know. There's lies we tell ourselves so that we can remain in the same condition. And there's lies that we believe from the enemy that degrade us uh, as image bearers of God, that put us down, and that really cause us not to believe that God can do in us what we've seen him do in other people. Jesus knows what's in you, and he loves you. He gives his life for you. And everything that comes from him is good, so we can trust him. So we need a, a full understanding of who Jesus is. We don't want to be naive. We don't want to be uh, limited in our understanding or our view of Jesus. The scriptures, especially the gospels, give us a full and complete picture of who he is. We can't just say he was a good man. He was a man, but he was a man or only a man. Uh, we can't say that he was just... Uh, Something spiritual, like an angel. He had a body. He was a man. He was fully God. He was fully man. He brought joy and he brought discipline. His compassion was deep. But his anger, his righteous anger, was intense. 
And it's all the same Jesus. We need to embrace and follow that Jesus. We need to believe in that whole Jesus. We need to understand him. And so my encouragement to you guys today is that you would embrace and obey the cleansing and the discipline of the Lord. That you would open your lives up to his scrutiny, to his, uh, he knows what's in you. It's like Psalm 51, uh, the end of David's psalm. This is after his sin with Bathsheba. He said, search me and know me. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a good prayer. That's a great place to start. You ask God to do that, and I bet that there's something that he can reveal. Is there any offensive way in me? Well, you can ask my family, you know. Uh, I've, uh, you know, I'm not Jesus. I've had my... uh, rages, my cleansings, you know, my attempts to put things right in my household, and I'm not sure that my anger was always righteous, you know. We can, we can trust Jesus to approach things. We can trust the goodness of his heart, is what I'm saying. So I challenge you, please, open your lives to Jesus. Open yourselves to the discipline. Obey to the brim. Let him drive out of your life the things that are hindering you, that are holding you back. His kingdom wants to be, break fully into your life. We're to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he wants to give us abundant life. He said, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And the process to walking fully in that is embracing and obeying the discipline of the Lord. Letting him, the one that saves you, sanctify you. Letting the one that helps you, make you holy. Letting the one that delivers you, discipline you. Letting the one that converted you, cleanse you. And it's all from his goodness. And we'll stop there. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this message. I thank you for John and his gospel and putting these two uh, scenes side by side. So we can have a full picture of who you are. We can have a a complete understanding. We don't want to have a shallow belief. Uh, We know that your love is multifaceted. That we can observe it. We can turn it. We can uh, zoom in. We can zoom out. we uh, We can behold it from many different angles and always discover something new. You're not shallow. You're not one dimensional. There's a depth to you, God. And we trust that every part of you is good. And so we embrace uh, even your discipline. So Lord, reveal in us the things that are holding us back and give us uh, the grace and the courage and the discipline to deal with them and to remove them. We want to see your abundant life manifest in our lives. And we want it to pour over and spill over into our families and into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces into our relationships. We want to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we embrace whatever it is that you wish to do in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name.